Welcome to The Blueprint, the podcast for the world's visionaries and dreamers. I'm your host, Chika Chukudebelo. Today's episode is a special one because it's our season one finale episode. Yes, we have successfully reached the end of our first season, and we're excited about the connections we've made to you, our listeners, from all over the world. We record and edit the show in Los Angeles, California, but we've heard from listeners in Chicago, Atlanta, New York, Sweden, and even Budapest. It's been reassuring to hear just how similar the struggles we're all facing, despite our different paths, and that has been part of the impetus of us creating this show. We've decided for our season finale to do sort of a best of episode, pulling together pieces from all of our guests who share their stories with us. There are no specific order, just the order we found that makes the most sense to string together. Our first clip comes from Franklin Leonard, the founder and CEO of the screenplay database, The Blacklist. If you remember, Franklin started his career working as a consultant, where part of his job was to figure out how to help magazines reduce their paper costs. Needless to say, the passion wasn't there. I went to Human Resources and said, how do I quit? Really? Yeah. And the the secretary in Human Resources (laughs) said, look, take a week. Take a week, collect another paycheck. Burnout is common here. Uh Don't rush into anything. Uh, If you still want to quit, we'll take care of it. And... um, a couple of days later, before I, I sort of worked up the nerve to quit, my entire analyst class was laid off with five months severance. Wow. Yeah. Um, which was, so you know, was coming, I have to assume that she did. And I have to assume out. it was as good looking out as a person can do, honestly. Wow. Short of, you know, pulling me back from a, a out of control car uh-huh. or like taking a bullet for me. Uh-huh. That is as good as looking out gets. Sometimes on the road to pursuing your dreams, you can realize that you feel stuck in a job you can't wait to give your two weeks notice for. Franklin was there and he wanted out, but his youthful enthusiasm was tempered by some good counsel he got from HR of all places. The lesson here I figure is by all means, go after that thing that you love, but make sure that you let your decisions breathe. Maybe you don't need to be so hasty and just make sure you have all the information you need to take that leap. That info just might land you a five month severance package. From the urge to quit, to being pushed out of the bird's nest. Our next story comes to us from Warner Brothers VP, Nyjah Kirkendall. In her conversation with Nyjah, she talks about the first opportunity she received to work in film. On the surface, it seemed great. One of the most prestigious film labs in the world, Sundance, had invited her to work with the filmmakers during their upcoming session. The risk was that the lab lasted for only four weeks. When she's presented with this decision, she actually has a stable corporate job working for Viacom. The job she was considering was temporary, and once those four weeks were done, she'd have to go through the hustle of the job search all over again. A friend of mine, Effie Brown, a producer, called me up and said the Sundance Director's Lab is looking for a PA. Mm -hmm. It's a really amazing experience if you're interested in film, and I know you're interested in film, Mm -hmm. and you should really think about it. Mm -hmm. It's not a job, it's for a month, it's in Sundance, Utah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's an amazing experience. Uh And so that actually threw me into a little bit of a crisis because then it was like I had to make a decision, and up to that point, I was kind of half, half, kind of half doing it, you know. (laughs) Still had my secure corporate job. Right, but this one you can keep And I kind of was, no. So I actually went, I still tried to keep my, I still tried to have my cake and eat it too. (laughs) And I went to my boss and I asked for a leave of absence for a month. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I use all my vacation time, whatever you want me to do. Uh I just want to go and I want to have this experience for the month. It seems really amazing. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, no, she said, we love you here. You have this job as long as you want it. You could, you could do, you're really smart. You could go really far in this, 
but this is not what you want to do and you're too young you need to decide you need to go for what you want mm-hmm. you're too young to compromise do you think she was doing that to push you out of the nest because they probably could have figured it out for you like could have figured she, out a way she did that she's actually still a really good friend of mine okay and she was a great mentor uh-huh. and she totally did that to push me out of the nest uh-huh. she totally did that to push me <laughs> out of the comfort zone of having a job mm-hmm. right um because and she it was still my choice i could have decided not to do it right. and just stay at viacom right. um but she was great i mean she was always supportive always you know knew i was creative and mm-hmm. let me go down and pitch things to mtv right, you know what i right. mean and let me go to film stuff mm-hmm. and women in film had a lunch and i was the one that got to go on behalf of our department and be at the viacom table because she knew i was interested in it gotcha. right so she was just really supportive so mm-hmm. that was her okay. trying to help me and push me out and i quit in that room uh, <laughs> you did in that conversation How i was like well feel? i guess i quit <laughs> Risky moves always involve a level of uncertainty that can make us fearful to make bold moves. A little nudge in the right direction always helps. There are no guarantees, but if you do your research, you'll figure it out. So let's fast forward a bit. You're on the road now to going after that dream. The initial dream that you just know is what you're meant to do. And then you start getting signs that steer you toward a detour. What do you do? Listen to how writer and catchy Carol responded to her signs. Okay, I desperately want to be in this industry. I love being a writer. I love being an actress, but I'm not getting, even going out on auditions, I wasn't getting the roles I wanted to go out for. So I had to have a conversation with God and just be like, okay, I'm going to stop beating my head against the wall. If I'm not supposed to be an actress and I'm just supposed to be a writer, then I will listen to that. I'm not crazy. And literally within weeks of having that conversation with God, I signed with my literary manager and she started to get me into meetings all over town. And it was that epiphany of suddenly I was meeting on shows after sort of focusing on writing, solely on writing for like, you know, six months or whatever. Mm -hmm. I'd always been writing, but solely on writing for about six months. I was meeting with producers on shows that I'd spent the last seven years trying to get on as an actress. So I was like, okay, wake up call received, (laughs) message received, got it. This is the path I'm supposed to be on. I will listen, I will go. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're wondering what those signs we just talked about look like for you. Detour signs come in all kinds of forms. But for former Google executive Ellen Huerta, it was more the absence of something that made her realize a detour was in her future. So towards the end of 2012, Mm -hmm. I remember sitting in a meeting. It was a big planning meeting. Mm -hmm. And like our director was in town for it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was sitting on a team that managed um, a really substantial portfolio. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of scrutiny. So we'd been preparing this presentation for a really long time to talk about our strategy and, um, you know, what our clients' goals were Mm -hmm. and what their challenges were and how we were going to help them grow. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in that meeting and feeling like sort of neutral. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that feeling that I was just completely neutral about what was going on. Mm Because these were like high stakes. Mm -hmm. These were clients that I cared about. Mm -hmm. Um, These were teammates that I cared about. Mm -hmm. But I just, my heart wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And when that happened, I realized, okay, not only is it a good idea for me to step away, but 
it's also a good idea for someone else to come in and do this job who's super excited to mm-hmm. do it. Because there are a lot of people who would be very excited to do it. Yeah. Um, and I... There were a lot of other things that had sort of been bubbling up that I was interested in mm-hmm. besides what? what I was doing. Like um, The idea of mend mm-hmm. was in the back of my mind. Okay. I had gone through a breakup and um, couldn't find the help that I needed online. Mm-hmm. And so I figured maybe I can build it mm-hmm. if it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I noticed that over and over in our conversations with our guests, it pretty much never served anyone wrong to trust their gut. Every single time, even if a detour ended up being necessary down the road, the end almost always made the journey feel worth it. So how does your gut instinct show up for you? What does it say to you? For the web series creator and showrunner, Nicole Amartefio, she couldn't help but to know that there was another response to what she was being told by mainstream media. I really wanted to change the story of how Af- the story the story that was being told about the African continent because it was not all poverty. You know, there was another side to it. Yeah. It wasn't about mud huts. Right. Sometimes it was about beautiful homes. Yeah. Um, it wasn't about poor kids begging for money on the street. Sometimes it's about kids who are the best darn basketball players that I know who go to Ghana International School. Um, You know, so there's so many stories um, as me as a Ghanaian that I felt like were universal, but I kept being told, no, Africa can only be one story. Okay, now we're going to fast forward a little bit more. You've made the leap, you've pushed past your doubts, and you've learned to trust what your gut is telling you. You might think that by now you'll be coasting, or maybe not. It'll be hard, and you'll be tempted to take the easy route to success. For celebrity makeup artist Malika James, her patience paid off. I worked on the game, and you may know this, but just people that hear may not understand. When you work as a makeup artist, and you have a de- there's a department head, a key, and the third. Mm-hmm. As a third, you're supposed to help and do whatever the department head and the key wants you to do. Mm-hmm. And there's etiquette. You don't solicit yourself. To, to do makeup for people. Mm-hmm. You don't um, step on anyone's toes. You basically just shut up and mm-hmm. do exactly what you're told. Fill in the blanks. Fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And Brandy asked me to do her makeup, and I told her no. You know, Were you the key or the I third? I was a the third, okay. and I was a happy third. I'm st- I still pride myself on being a good <laughs> third. I just was so happy to be there, and um, the department head was Lalette Little John, and her key was Jonetta Stowers, and they were, you know, really big. They'd done so many, like, big movies, and um, they were handpicked, I believe, by Laretha to come and start the game. Mm. And I was just happy to be there. Brandy asked me to do makeup for her. And no one told me these rules. Mm-hmm. I just felt morally like, uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Like, you're supposed to ask her. You're not supposed to come and ask me, mm-hmm. you know? And so I told her no. Mm-hmm. And she was like, whoa. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, so I can't have your number? And mm-hmm. I was like, no. You know, I got to go ask my department head. And just very on the up and up. Because mm-hmm. I never wanted them to, I never wanted to seem like I didn't appreciate what they were doing for me, the mm-hmm. opportunity they were giving me. So I went back to the department head. I'm like, hey, guys. You know, Brandy asked me. They're like, oh, yep. Happens all the time. Did you do it? And I'm like, hell no. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, man, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Life goes on. We come back for another season. 
Um, they changed the department. Uh, Lalette and Janetta were not there anymore. It was some some new ladies coming in, and because Brandy remembered me, mm-hmm. she again asked me to do her makeup. Mm-hmm. I'm like, nope, because I was still a third. I'm <laughs> like, yeah, no, you gotta ask them, and you know how this works, yeah, you know, Brandy. Yeah. You've been doing this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Well, the lady seen her talking to me and got so jealous and was like, you know, get your shit and go to you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, um, do you want to talk about it? Or she's like, no, I just see you talking to her. And I'm like, cool, man. Like, all right. Disappointed. Grab my stuff. She you fired you from the show? Oh, she was like, you're out. Get your I see you talking. Cause this, and it's also, too, in, in that kind of department when it's a makeup department head. And you can fire whoever. I could mm. fire you for wearing orange lipstick if I want to. Mm. You know, you're a third. No one's going to. You don't have to interact with the executives. You don't have to interact with the director. No one really sees you, right. you know? Right. So I'm like, all right, cool. Get my stuff. And Brandy comes out of nowhere, and she's like, no. This girl, I've asked for her phone number last year. She did not give it to me. I've asked her to do my makeup. She would not do it. She's not going anywhere. And I know that you look at her like she's the bottom of the barrel, but she actually has the skills of being at the top. And it's the fact that she's so humble and she's so morally grounded. She would that spoke volumes to me. Whoa. And I've been in this business for a long time. I know a snake. I know mm-hmm. bad people. Mm-hmm. That's not one of them. She's not going anywhere. Wow. And it was a big uproar. Like yeah. all the actors are like, "Oh man, wait a minute! Uh-huh. Like she's cool." And so I was. I think that was the most surprising place mm-hmm. to get help from because I never thought that she even paid that much attention to me. Mm-hmm. There's just no substitute for staying true to your character. Now, because we know that having strong character has social currency. Living in an age of social media can complicate things. How much do we take in about what other people say about us online? For the founder and CEO of Curlbox, Myleek Teal, she had to take a hard look at herself to gain proper perspective. The storms really came um, by way of the sort of reaction of a lot of women online when I started the company. I started it purely from a space of like um, goodness, you know, like wanting to be able to help women and, you know, reaching out to a lot of brands that haven't necessarily marketed to women of color, are afraid to market to women of color because of how vocal we can be. And um, I, for the, I got firsthand experience um, in people and really kind of mistreating me. And so I didn't really understand that at first. Like it baffled me that, you know, I had sacrificed all this time and all made all this effort and tried to introduce something to the space that was really beautiful. And I would get like, um, I would wake up in the morning and I would have like people tweeting me um, craziest things ever, you know, terrible things about me. I would have people commenting on my Instagram about how terrible I was. And I would have people doing YouTube videos, which still exist about how I was a thief and I was this and that. And I don't know that you can ever be prepared for it. And I remember that I would like watch celebrities and, and, you know, see them say things like, you know, you'll never understand what it's like to be on the other side of someone talking badly about you until it's you. And, you know, these are complete strangers. (laughs) And you're like, how is this happening? And and it seems like it never stops. And, um, you know, my first reaction was the worst reaction where I just kind of clapped back. I was angry. I was upset. Um, You know, like there are some celebs that we know today that do that. And then um, I just, you know, I went to, I decided to go get some professional help. I checked into psychotherapy and the therapist was just like, 
help me understand that this is not about me. Like people writing me negative things like that is not about me. That is about them. You know, it's like what you say says more about you than the person. And, and it took it. I didn't really understand that. And so I began to have some sympathy for those people. And so when people do that, even to this day, you know, if they write me something or if they say something, I'm kind of just like, oh, you know, I feel bad for them that that they are feeling this way about me in their life because, you know, they really don't know me. They just know they know what they think they know. And so I can't get upset with people who are judging me based on, you know, 140 characters or a photo or, you know, anything like that. So, yeah. Other issues that might pop up out of nowhere will be more logistical, but they will still test what you're made of. How do you respond? Celebrity chef Jamika Pessoa knew she just had to do what she had to do. I remember when I did the BET Hip Hop Awards. It was first awards in Atlanta. And once again, I got a call and they were like, yeah, can you do this? And they're like, yeah, originally they called me for 150 people. And I was like, I could do that in my sleep. And then two days before the show, they called and said, can you do it for 500? Yeah, that's what I said, woo. And I, I'm like, I can't tell BET no. So I said, yeah, sure. And I literally got all my stuff together. I built a home, makeshift kitchen in my house. I had my bathtub. I turned the air conditioning down to like 50 some degrees. I had but 60 pounds of shrimp on ice in my bathtub. I had like asparagus on ice that I had to grill, like 20 pounds of that in my windowsill. I cooked literally for 24 hours straight. I knew that at that time I could not call in anybody pay somebody else to do it. I literally had to cook for myself. And when it came to serving, I asked two of my girlfriends, can you just put on an apron? They didn't cook anything, they do nothing about it. I was like, just smile and offer the tray. If anybody has a question, come find me. Uh -huh. But I had to do that for myself. Wow. <laughs> exactly. But I said to myself, well, I'm at three in the morning, I'm grilling asparagus and shrimp and everything else. If I can do this, I can do anything. Mm -hmm. And it's those little things, if you are faithful in the little, the big is no problem because you've already done that. Everyone has to start somewhere, so you might be wearing many hats right now. Once you decide that your plate has grown so full that you do need a team, you'll still be the one held accountable at the end of the day. Writer Lena Waith talks about the importance of her voice being heard by her team. The biggest thing is when I'm on these calls um, is to really step up and to be a voice and not to be told what I'll be doing, mm -hmm. but for me to, to pipe up and make sure I'm saying what we will be doing or mm -hmm. chiming in with what I think the next moves are. Um, uh, only person I don't talk to like that is Nina Shaw. Nina Shaw gets the final <laughs> word. She knows what she's talking about. Right. But um, but I think, you know, when I'm on these calls, and there's three guys, you know, often because Nina's very busy, but Gordon Bob is often, you know, he's, the, he's, he's usually on the call. So I'm talking to three men, mm -hmm. you know, and I think for me stepping up and owning my mm -hmm. role on that call and mm -hmm. saying, no, I don't think so. I think we should go this route. Or I think we should do this. Or I think this makes the most sense to me. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating because they'll go, yeah, you're right. Okay, cool. We hear that. All right, we'll make that move. And it's like, I think there's so many writers that don't operate that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very much like, well, what do you think? And I'll do it every now and again with Andrew because he's my manager. So I go, well, what do you think, Mr. Manager? And even when things are going great, you'll still have those nights where you just kind of wake up with fear the kind of fear that like grips you. There'll be a lot of negative voices in your head telling you what you can and can't do. Delali Pozzo, co-founder of We Are Onyx, shares how she responded to her worst fear. There was a time when I was really convinced that this wasn't gonna work. Mm. And uh, it was like a lingering thought in the back of my mind that it's gonna fail. Why did, 
Why did you think that? It was just really hard at that time. And I was just going through it and everything was a mess. And it felt like I had no direction. I was by myself and mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, and I was just like, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. um, and what am I going to do? Where do I get a job after this? I've been out of the industry for like two years at this point. Mm -hmm. Who's going to hire me? How so embarrassing. So two years into the business that you you had this thought? Um no, no, no. I mean, I had this thought. No, I mean, we're almost going on our second anniversary. So mm -hmm. it's probably maybe a year. I don't know. Um, a, a little over a year into it. This was a little while ago. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I was so concerned about failing. Uh, the concept of failing is just like not something that I manage well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, but more importantly, it was going to be in, on a public stage mm -hmm. that I would fail. If you fail a class in college or something, nobody knows except you, right. your teacher, and, yeah. you know, the lady at the office who manages transcripts. Like, nobody really knows about that. But if you fail at a business, it's like you told everybody about mm -hmm. this. This is your release. image. There was a press release. There were pictures of you smiling like it was fabulous. Mm -hmm. um, what if it fails? Mm -hmm. And so then I spent a lot of time reading um, articles, books. Uh, posts, blog posts, anything I could find about entrepreneurs who failed. Mm -hmm. And how, what, what, <laughs> what happens after you fail? Mm -hmm. Oh God, how embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Did they ever work again? Did they crawl into a hole? Did they change their name and leave the country? Like what happened? Right. What did you find? Um, I found that so many of the biggest companies out there that were founded by a couple guys or a couple girls, um, their previous gigs, like three or four of them had failed mm. and spectacularly. Mm. They had lost hundreds of thousands of dollars mm -hmm. of some investors' money, wow. millions of mm -hmm. some investors' money. And yet there they are, TechCrunch Disrupt, sitting on stage, CEO of the next hot thing, mm. And they are as confident as ever. Right. And I was like, first of all, How is face again? <laughs> you should be ashamed. And then I realized, no, you shouldn't be. Because every single failure is truly a learning opportunity in a way that sounds so nonsense when you say it um, until you really think about it. I mean, you know, to think about how many companies you know, the guys who founded Twitter crashed right. before right before they got to they that. came up with Twitter. So what if they had stopped before? What they if got they had stopped? What if they had changed their names and left the country? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Right. You know? And finally, when you take in all the things you've learned and replay them over and over in your head, you just might realize that you pretty much have every tool you need to reach that finish line. Make sure you own that when you walk into any room. I guess I learned, you know, the importance of fake it till you make it more so for yourself than for anyone else. Okay. Because the truth about it is people say that and it sounds trite, but the truth is if you don't believe it, you will never convince anyone. And so sometimes you have to talk yourself into it. Um, in order to be able to project it, to exude it, to command it, you know. And that's it for season one of The Blueprint. 
We love sharing these stories with you and just hope you've come away with a nugget or two of inspiration to live out your own dreams. If you have, we'd love to hear about it. The guests we've interviewed are amazingly gifted individuals, but their biggest success, in my opinion, has been doing whatever it takes to position their lives in a way where they get paid to share their gifts. And there's nothing about that that's not possible for you as well. We are going to take a hiatus for a little while to load up on season two. We've got a lot of yummy interviews already scheduled with folks we know you'll be excited to hear from. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at ShowMeBlueprint to get the news of our exact release date for season two. We've thoroughly enjoyed sharing these episodes with you and look forward to bringing you more stories from visionaries and dreamers like yourself. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite podcast listening tool is so that you never miss an episode. From our Blueprint show producer, Sonatali Narsis, and myself, Chika Chukudibelu, we want you to stay encouraged and keep drafting your blueprint.